community is more hopeless now than it was before, even if violence never returned to the disastrous earlier levels. They have no hope that anything is going to change. They see nothing has been done within that five years. A veteran gang probation officer named Jim Gallipo offered a similar assessment. The only tragedy of the truce was that society needed to reward the gang members who created it, yet didn't do a damn thing. Given the continued lack of jobs, substandard housing, limited educational opportunities, and police harassment, all of the conditions that precipitated the rebellion in the first place, the old status quo seemed destined to reemerge. Crime, collective mistrust, and exhaustive policing ultimately prevailed. We are seeing people going back to what they used to be doing, the familiar ways of surviving, selling drugs, robbing, gambling, stealing, hustling, truce organizer Dwayne Holmes said. People do all sorts of things to live, to survive, to pay their rent and their bills. Jerry Silva, a leader of Mothers Reclaiming Our Children, which was established in 1992 to protect young Black and Latino men against police abuse and discrimination in the criminal justice system, drew a conclusion that could have been made about the government response to the 1965 Watts Rebellion at the height of the war on poverty. It is this illusion of change where government or business or Rebuild L.A. come in and say, Look what we've done, Silva said. And down the line, when things don't work, they will blame the people who live in the community. That the armistice in Watts held for a decade was remarkable. Its legacy can be most clearly seen today, however, in the gang intervention programs that became a permanent part of the LAPD. I feel like law enforcement has successfully co-opted the movement because now gang intervention has to be validated in a sense by law enforcement, Daoud Sherrills observed in May 1997. Sherrills was referring to the former gang members who were employed by the city starting in the late 1990s. These men would defuse violence by discouraging victims from seeking revenge and by brokering peace agreements between rivals. The embrace of gang intervention programs and similar strategies in Los Angeles and other cities marked a step toward empowering residents to solve crime control problems themselves. Yet even this promising approach offered little tangible change in Cheryl's Jordan Downs. We want to tear all this down and build it back up, but we want to do it ourselves, Cheryl said, continuing to voice the goals of the truce. You see any improvements around here? Asked Nickerson Gardens resident Greg Brown. Now the future in Watts and South Central is jail. You see that new 77th Street station? Brown asked, referring to the $30 million LAPD station that opened in 1997. It's beautiful. You see anything else in the community that looks better than that jail? The Bloods and Crips had asked for a mere $6 million to transform policing in South Central. Give us the hammer and the nails, and we will rebuild the city, their 1992 proposal had begged. Like the 1960s and 1970s rebellions, the massive, nationally televised rebellions from 1980 onward were carried out by people who wanted not only an end to police violence— but a chance to rebuild their communities and live their lives on their own terms. Yet policymakers consistently resisted socioeconomic solutions, 
focusing instead on increasing the scale of crime control resources and ultimately supporting the expansion of the prison system to contain troublesome groups. While many Americans understand the period from the 1960s to the 1990s and into the present as one of transformation and even of progress on many fronts, including the diversification of numerous workplaces, increased political representation for people of color, and general prosperity, the rebellions across these decades indicate that for many low-income communities of color, there was more continuity than anything else. Chapter 10 The Reforms The viewing at Timothy Thomas's funeral lasted for nearly two hours. An uninterrupted stream of people flowed through New Prospect Baptist Church in the heart of Cincinnati's over-the-Rhine neighborhood, walking past the open coffin to pay their respects. The mourners prayed over Thomas's body. They reached out and softly stroked his face— they embraced one another and sobbed together. Some young men wore white T-shirts bearing an image of Thomas and the letters R.I.P., or shirts with slogans cursing the police. Thomas had been killed by a cop one week before. Now the 19-year-old was being laid to rest on a white satin pillow before nearly 1,000 family, friends, and community members, as well as national civil rights activists who had flown to Cincinnati for the service. At around 2 o'clock in the morning of April 7, 2001, two off-duty officers moonlighting as security guards at a bar in Over the Rhine had spotted Thomas on his way to buy cigarettes and attempted to stop him. Thomas bolted, the off-duty officers couldn't keep up, and they called 10 officers for backup. The young man led the dozen policemen on a seven-minute chase over fences and between abandoned buildings, through empty lots and back alleys. Officer Stephen Roach, 27 years old and a four-year veteran of the force, was the one who caught him. He found Thomas hiding behind a building. Thomas made a sudden movement, Roach later claimed, and the officer assumed he was reaching for a gun in his waistband. Roach fired his own weapon. Thomas was unarmed. They keep asking me why did my son run? Thomas's mother, Angela Leisure, told a reporter. For Leisure, the answer was simple. If you are an African-American male, you will run. Thomas's police records showed that he had run from officers on two other occasions in the months before his killing. He ran to avoid being captured and detained, to protect himself from possible violence— he ran because it seemed his best option to stay free and alive. To Roach and the eleven other officers who pursued Thomas, the young man ran because he was guilty of something and therefore dangerous. Leisure had moved with her family to Cincinnati from the south side of Chicago four years earlier to prevent Thomas and her other children from getting involved in that city's gang warfare. In Chicago, I never worried about police killing my children, as she put it, Cincinnati was supposed to offer Thomas a long, full life and better opportunities. This was worse than my worst nightmare, Leisure said after the killing. At the time of the shooting, Thomas split his time between his mother's home in Golf Manor and the home of Monique Wilcox, his fiancée. Wilcox lived with Taiwan, 
the three-month-old son she shared with Thomas, in Over the Rhine, where 89% of residents lived at or below the poverty line. Jobs were difficult to come by, but things were beginning to turn around for Thomas, who had recently earned a high school general equivalency diploma. He hoped to become an electrician, though had so far only found work as a temporary laborer, work he was scheduled to start the Monday after he was killed. Like many other black men in Over the Rhine, Thomas not only struggled to secure a decent job, but was the victim of constant police surveillance and harassment. The cops would spot Thomas driving his green 1978 Chevy and pull him over for no reason, issuing him citations for violations that could only be detected after the officer had initiated contact, such as driving without a license or failing to secure Taiwan in his car seat properly. Thomas received 20 traffic citations during the spring of 2000 alone. Different officers even pulled Thomas over twice in one day. Thomas ignored most of the tickets, and by the time of his killing, had accumulated 14 misdemeanor arrest warrants for failure to appear in court or pay fines. Thomas's record, which consisted of a conviction as a juvenile for receiving stolen property, would convince Judge Ralph Winkler to clear Officer Roach of all charges five months later. Timothy Thomas was not unknown to the Cincinnati police, Winkler explained in his decision. Police Officer Roach's history was unblemished prior to this incident. Timothy Thomas's history was not unblemished. Thomas had no real history of criminal, let alone violent, behavior. The blemishes on Thomas's record were the product of an aggressive, zero-tolerance policing strategy that in practice created police records for Thomas and other black residents and strengthened the case for their incarceration or killing down the line, while simultaneously imposing exorbitant fines and court costs that filled municipal coffers. Between March 1999 and December 2000, black people in Cincinnati, who made up about 43% of the city's 331,000 residents, were issued 81% of all citations for driving without proof of insurance, 72% of citations for driving without a license, and 70% of tickets for driving without a seatbelt. 79% of people accused of jaywalking in Cincinnati in that period were black. Anti-black practices extended into the city's public schools, where suspension and expulsion rates of black students consistently ranked among the highest in the United States. As in so many other cities and municipalities across the country, from the 1960s to the present day, in Cincinnati, the aggressive policing of low-income men of color was widely regarded as the most effective means of controlling crime— with little or no concern about the civil rights violations or the collateral damage of these practices, the police were free to treat black men as both guilty and dangerous, an assumption that led directly to police violence, as it had with Thomas. Thomas was the 15th black man to die at the hands of Cincinnati police since 1995. The majority of the killings were of suspects who posed an active threat— bank robbers, kidnappers, and people who started firing at the police. Five of the deaths, including Thomas's, involved unarmed suspects as young as 12 who did not appear to pose an immediate threat to the officers who killed them. 
For the loved ones of the dead, and for increasing numbers of concerned black residents, the overall death toll demonstrated that, at minimum, police had a fundamental disregard for the lives of black men. No other Cincinnati residents were killed by police during this period. Beatings and killings of unarmed suspects all led to protests. Demonstrations began after police punched and kicked Farron Crosby, an 18-year-old high school honors student, when he refused to disperse as part of an unruly crowd of teenagers gathered at a downtown bus stop in April 1995. The incident was captured, like Rodney King's beating, in a two-minute video. In February 1997, Cincinnati police shot Lorenzo Collins, a 25-year-old with a history of mental illness, multiple times. Anti-police brutality protests resumed in November 2000 after police attempted to arrest 29-year-old Roger Owensby Jr. on an outstanding warrant and suffocated him to death in the process. Timothy Thomas's killing the following spring seemed to underscore that the existing options, peacefully demonstrating and seeking justice through conventional legal channels, were completely inadequate against entrenched police violence and a system that was racist to the core. Three other black men had been killed by police over the five months prior to Thomas. When he was killed, the community erupted into the largest rebellion the country had seen since Los Angeles, nearly a decade prior. As the uprising drew national attention, the federal government would get involved, as it had in Miami in 1980 and in Los Angeles in 1992. Yet Cincinnati received a starkly different federal response. The rebellion came in the early years of a new era of civil rights enforcement that had begun in the mid-1990s and lasted through the presidency of Barack Obama, ending in January 2017. An increasingly diverse Department of Justice, including the first black attorney general, Eric Holder, from 2009 to 2015, and his successor, Loretta Lynch, the first black woman to assume this role, started focusing on reforming violent police practices. Tracking cities where black residents rebelled, including Ferguson in 2014 and Baltimore in 2015, or that suffered from alarming levels of brutality and were therefore likely on the brink of rebellion, as was the case in Cleveland in 2015, the Justice Department during the George W. Bush and Obama administrations sent attorneys and investigators to attempt to fix policing and improve police-community relations. The federal intervention in Cincinnati lasted for eight years. By 2015, the community's trust in police had increased, and the kind of routine stops that ended in the death of Timothy Thomas had declined. Misdemeanor arrests in Cincinnati decreased 57% between 2000 and 2014. The Kerner Commission and other post-rebellion task forces in the late 1960s and early 1970s had merely offered recommendations, most of which were simply ignored by policymakers. Now in Cincinnati, the federal government itself oversaw the implementation of new policing reforms— Yet, like the earlier efforts, police killings of black men persisted nonetheless. In 2015, a black man in Cincinnati could still get pulled over for a missing front license plate and end up dead, and the officer who pulled the trigger could walk free. 
2001 rebellion in Cincinnati and its aftermath represented the last iteration of the 20th century uprisings and at the same time anticipated a shift in black protest that would emerge fully in Ferguson and other cities later in the new century. For residents who were old enough to remember, the violence in 2001 recalled the rebellions of the late 1960s. Cincinnati's rebellion in June 1967 began as a protest against an anti-loitering ordinance that the police selectively used to arrest black residents. Seventy percent of the 240 people arrested under the law between January 1966 and June 1967 were black. As the crowd threw rocks and bottles, looted stores and set fires, activists demanded an end to the ordinance. The release of all those arrested in connection to the uprising, full employment, and equal justice. Authorities responded by bringing in 700 National Guardsmen who rolled through the city in armored vehicles, machine guns in hand. The next year, 1,500 National Guardsmen were called in to suppress violence following a memorial service in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. on April 8, 1968, when much of the country was on fire. The King Rebellion in Cincinnati caused nearly $3 million worth of property damage and ended in the death of a 30-year-old white civilian who was dragged from his car and stabbed to death by a group of black residents. The uprising in Cincinnati 33 years later shared many features with these earlier events. A protest against racial injustice spiraled into confrontation with a militarized police force, followed by a turn to window-breaking, looting, fire-setting, and general property destruction. On Monday, April 9th, two days after Thomas was killed, and with no answers from authorities, Angela Leisure led several hundred angry people to City Hall, where a meeting of the City Council's Law and Public Safety Committee was taking place. A group of protesters stormed the building and occupied the meeting, demanding an explanation for Thomas's death and keeping the council members inside the room for three hours. I remember asking myself, Leisure recalled of the disruption, how many times have people come down to these meetings and asked peacefully for changes to be made in the police department? The city and police officials at the meeting refused to say anything to Thomas's family or the community about the circumstances of her son's killing, claiming the incident was still under investigation. Withholding critical information only raised suspicions about a cover-up. Leisure later asked, how many people will die before these changes will actually have to be made? Stymied by the Public Safety Committee, the crowd, now 800 strong and made up of over-the-Rhine residents as well as black Cincinnatians from elsewhere in the city, proceeded to march on police headquarters. When they arrived, someone threw a brick through the glass entrance to the building, while another person took down the American flag from the flagpole in front and rehung it upside down. The crowd, which had grown to 1,000 people, hurled rocks and bottles at police, and the police fired tear gas bombs and beanbag rounds in response. As the violence on both sides escalated, chants of stop the killing and no justice, no peace filled the downtown streets of Cincinnati until midnight. The rebellion gained momentum the next day, Tuesday, April 10th, when dozens of young black men marched together through over the Rhine, trailed by police. 
As the protest grew to several hundred participants, marchers threw rocks, bottles, and trash at the officers patrolling them. In the afternoon, some residents continued the march downtown, overturning newspaper racks and garbage cans along the way. The police, on horseback or in riot gear, continued to fire tear gas, bean bags, and rubber bullets into the crowd. By dusk, rebels were smashing the windows of businesses, taking merchandise, and setting fires, the most devastating of which burned the city-owned open-air market in the heart of Over the Rhine, called Finlay's. The violence spread to other black neighborhoods on Wednesday, expanding into random attacks on white residents, including a woman who was dragged from her car and beaten, and a male truck driver who was severely assaulted. Someone also reportedly shot a police officer in Over the Rhine, but his bulletproof vest saved him from serious harm. Mayor Charlie Lucan declared a state of emergency and a citywide curfew on Thursday, April 12th, the first time such measures had been imposed since 1968. The violence on our streets is uncontrolled and it runs rampant. The time has come to deal with this seriously, Lucan said at a news conference held on the fourth afternoon of the rebellion. There's gunfire here like you might hear in Beirut. It's dangerous and it's getting more dangerous. Treating a black neighborhood like a war zone, officers on horseback patrolled the streets leading out of the over-the-Rhine community, while riot-gear-clad police fired rubber bullets and beanbags at the assembled crowds. That evening, local police in helmets and bulletproof vests, state troopers and sheriff's deputies with shotguns, and a helicopter flying above showed that law enforcement was prepared for a major confrontation. But it never came. Outside of sporadic bottle and rock throwing, the occasional gunshot, and a fire at a deli, the violence had subsided significantly, as most people stayed home when the curfew went into effect. The residents in Over the Rhine and other black neighborhoods who didn't stay home that Easter weekend ended up in jail. Police arrested 800 people for curfew violations during the rebellion, as well as 63 more who faced year-long prison sentences on charges of aggravated rioting, breaking and entering, or weapons possession. Officer Roach would receive a lesser punishment than all 863 of them. In March 2002, an internal probe determined that Roach mishandled his revolver and gave conflicting statements to investigators. He could have been fired for these infractions, but Roach had already quit the Cincinnati police to work for a suburban police department. By that point, the killing of Timothy Thomas had been erased from his record. Although the rebellion had almost completely died out by the time Thomas was buried on Saturday, April 14th, and although Chief of Police Thomas Stryker Jr. withdrew officers from the immediate vicinity of the funeral to allow mourners room to grieve, Police in full riot gear could still be found protecting stores in downtown Cincinnati from potential vandalism. Thomas's service, which was attended by NAACP President Kwesi Mfume and Martin Luther King III, among other national civil rights leaders, was necessarily political. The New Prospect Baptist Church was led by the Reverend Damon Lynch III, who was also president of the Cincinnati Black United Front and the city's most powerful voice for racial and economic justice. Serving as Thomas's pallbearers were members of the New Black Panther Party, 
a black nationalist organization more similar to the Nation of Islam than the Panthers of the 1960s and 1970s. Other New Panthers stood shoulder to shoulder in the pews during the service, letting out intermittent cries of black power. Although some speakers urged those in attendance not to get angry and trash your neighborhood, but instead to get angry and register to vote, the largest applause of the afternoon was for new Black Panther Party chairman Malik Zulu Shabazz. The events over the previous five days were not a riot, Shabazz suggested, but a righteous, divinely ordained rebellion. Shabazz received a standing ovation when he invoked popular slogans of the civil rights and black power eras. We must continue to resist by any divine means necessary. We ain't going to let nobody turn us around. During the funeral, hundreds of people outside the church prayed, chanted, and hoisted placards demanding justice. Let my people go, read the sandwich board Peter Frakes, a 39-year-old carpenter, wore during the protest. People have taken as much as they can take, Frakes explained to a reporter. We've had protests before. Nothing ever happens. As soon as everything quiets down, there will be another dead body. Still, Frakes kept protesting. He felt he had no other choice. A booming stock market, large tax cuts for the wealthy, and record corporate profits made the 1990s a highly lucrative decade for Cincinnati's almost entirely white upper-middle class. The Fortune 500 companies headquartered in the downtown business district, Procter & Gamble, Chiquita Brands International, and Kroger, among others, prospered, as did the city's rising technology companies. Alongside growing affluence came cutbacks and repression, as Bill Clinton's administration continued Ronald Reagan's attacks on welfare and social services and supported the dramatic expansion of the nation's prison system. Many lower-income people of all races were working longer hours, often in multiple jobs, and falling into increasing debt. Local boosters claimed that Cincinnati had rebounded from the devastating loss of automobile production jobs in the 1970s and 1980s to become a shining example of post-industrial growth. The city's own public relations campaign did not mention the fact that despite the all-white golf clubs in the northeastern suburbs of Cincinnati and the Saks Fifth Avenue near the riverfront downtown, two-thirds of the city's black residents lived in poverty. According to the 2000 census, Cincinnati was the sixth most segregated city in the country in terms of income. Class divisions deepened across the United States during the Clinton years, but in Cincinnati, inequality was particularly dramatic. The economic chasm between the wealthiest 5% and the poorest 5% was exceeded only by Tampa Bay, Florida. In contrast to the $26,774 median income in Cincinnati and the $54,800 median income in the greater Cincinnati metropolitan area, the median income among over-the-Rhine residents in 2001 was a meager $8,600, at a time when the national poverty line was $17,029. The rows of abandoned buildings and groups of unemployed young men who gathered on street corners and over the Rhine were less than a half mile from Saks. 
Municipal authorities may have been reluctant to invest in improving living conditions in Over the Rhine, but they did enthusiastically support the transformation of the downtown riverfront area along the Ohio River that the neighborhood bordered. The city allocated about $1 billion for the construction of new football and baseball stadiums, a basketball arena, upscale establishments, and affordable middle-class housing downtown. The city's solution to black poverty and abandonment in nearby over the Rhine was to revitalize the area, to gentrify it by offering tax incentives to tech startups, real estate developers, and corporations to set up shop in the neighborhood. The city paired the push to redevelop the downtown area and revitalize over the Rhine with more persistent crackdowns on homeless people and black youth. The enforcement of misdemeanors such as loitering and breaking curfew, together with frequent drug sweeps that led to hundreds of arrests, helped remove undesirables from the streets. The private sector hired officers as security guards or even paid police overtime costs directly, the latter being the approach of Hart Realty, landlord to hundreds of residents in Over the Rhine. These practices were not unique to Cincinnati then or today. But given the rising toll of black men killed by law enforcement and with no apparent consequences for police transgression, many black residents saw violence as the only thing that would compel authorities to scale back the zero-tolerance strategies and redirect resources to actually help the city's poor. The priorities in this city is all wrong, said Stephen Wheeler, the father of Adam Wheeler, one of the 15 boys and men killed by the Cincinnati Police Department in the six years leading up to Timothy Thomas's killing. We can take millions of dollars and pour it into a new stadium to support a bunch of losers, Wheeler said, referring to the Bengals, Cincinnati's NFL team, and a perennial laughingstock— but we can't take some of that money and put it into schools where we can build some potential winners. The underfunded schools, the displacement of poor black families from over the Rhine to make way for Silicon Alley, the extractive practices of the police department, these were manifestations of the system of economic apartheid at work in Cincinnati, as the Reverend Lynch often said. Even before the 2001 rebellion, Mayor Lucan acknowledged that the city was a tinderbox and pledged to make improving race relations his number one priority. It was an area where, Lucan admitted, we have a long way to go. In July 2000, during the annual Cincinnati Jazz Festival, an event known for attracting young black concertgoers from across the Midwest, some restaurants and stores closed their doors to attendees. Hotels increased their rates, demanded cash payment at check-in, and reportedly removed more expensive towels and linens from rooms. Perhaps the most obvious expression of the racism that shaped social relations in the city was the Ku Klux Klan rally, which started to be held annually as recently as 1996. In their white robes and hoods, Klansmen would erect and burn a cross in Fountain Square at the heart of downtown Cincinnati. Year after year, the police stood guard near the flames in order to prevent anyone from trying to douse or take down perhaps the starkest symbol of white supremacy in America. Although the Reverend Lynch and many other social justice activists in Cincinnati did not actively participate in the 2001 rebellion, they viewed it as an understandable response to decades of injustice. 
Even the black residents who threw rocks at police and randomly beat white people seemed to be making a point in the view of some. As the Thomas family attorney, Ken Lawson, bluntly said, the assaults gave whites a better understanding of what it feels like to be a random target of violence just because of the color of your skin. You don't condone violence, Lawson emphasized, but it took violence to get the attention of the city. I hope they hear the cry. Mayor Lucan appeared as one of the speakers at Timothy Thomas's funeral, using the moment to advocate for reconciliation and change. I ask that today be a catalyst for a new Cincinnati, Lucan said to the packed church, which applauded that line, at least. But they had heard similar promises before. Don't just say something, do something, some mourners shouted at the mayor from the pews. The violence in the streets had already pushed Lucan to take unprecedented steps to address police brutality. It seemed the city's best option was to call in the Justice Department, headed by Attorney General John Ashcroft, a staunch religious conservative whose dubious views on race had been raised during his confirmation hearings in January that year. As governor and senator of Missouri, Ashcroft had opposed school desegregation, blocked the appointment of black officials to public office, and praised Confederate heroes like Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis, calling them Southern patriots. On the fourth day of the rebellion, April 12th, Lucan wrote a letter to Ashcroft asking for help. The state of police community relations in Cincinnati is not healthy, Lucan explained. We could use an independent review of practices, procedures, and training as one tool to improve the situation. Ashcroft assured Lucan that the matter was a high priority and pledged to send a team of lawyers from the Civil Rights Division to Cincinnati. A few weeks later, the Department of Justice opened a pattern or practice inquiry, a new power granted to the Attorney General by Congress under the terms of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. The largest and most draconian crime bill in American history, the act's most notable features included a $10.8 billion program to support the hiring of 100,000 new police officers in cities nationwide and another $10 billion for prison construction. Prison populations kept skyrocketing as a result of the legislation. In 1970, fewer than 200,000 people were incarcerated in the United States. By 1990, this number had increased more than five-fold to reach 1.1 million, and by 2000, the figure had doubled to a record 2.3 million people. The Clinton White House and Congress cemented the status of the United States as home to the most expansive prison regime in the world, as a country defined in part by mass incarceration. Yet at the same time, after Los Angeles in 1992, the federal government could not completely ignore the conversation about police violence. The act created a mechanism by which the Justice Department could investigate a pattern or practice of conduct by law enforcement officers that appeared to violate constitutional protections against discrimination, excessive force, unreasonable stops and searches, and arrests without warrants or sufficient cause. Within a decade, the Justice Department had opened 25 civil pattern or practice cases, 
and had forced police departments from Pittsburgh to Puerto Rico to address systemic misconduct for the first time. In Cincinnati, Justice Department investigators spent the summer and fall of 2001 reviewing police records and conducting interviews with officials and community members. Finding that the Cincinnati Police Department practiced unconstitutional methods of enforcement, the investigators recommended better training, better oversight, and improved use-of-force policies. These were among the reforms proposed by the Kerner Commission in 1968, which had looked at the 1967 uprising in Cincinnati, among others. Over the following decades, 17 other commissions, task forces, and blue-ribbon panels had examined Cincinnati and arrived at similar, if not identical, conclusions. In a 1979 report on an 18-month period that saw four black residents killed by police and four police officers killed by black civilians, the mayor's community relations panel asked whether or not the police division can police itself, and more seriously, whether elected officials and appointed officials are willing to control police. It appeared that municipal and law enforcement authorities neither really care nor are willing to do anything about reported incidents of misconduct. Proving the panel's observation correct, when law enforcement and its powerful allies mobilized to protest the spate of police killings, the city responded by purchasing 357 Magnum revolvers, a further stockpile of lethal ammunition, and bulletproof vests for the department. Two years later, with the warnings still unheeded and with police enjoying their new arsenal, the United States Commission on Civil Rights concluded after an investigation that excessive force and harassment were pervasive within the Cincinnati Police Department, and it imposed a consent decree to address the systematic abuse. The Cincinnati Police Department, like many other urban police forces across the country, would undergo sensitivity training, create community-oriented policing programs, revise its rules around the use of deadly force, and take strides to increase diversity within its ranks. Yet the city did not institutionalize most of these reforms, and the various new programs eventually withered. After a 1987 federal consent decree, the police department did manage to double the number of black officers on the force by 2001. On paper, Cincinnati's effort looked impressive. Black officers constituted 28% of the police force in that year, making it one of the most diverse departments in the United States. Yet the city's black residents, who made up close to half of the overall population, remained underrepresented. Not only that, but black officers were forced to establish their own union and were often overlooked for promotion. Black officers also found themselves the targets of racial profiling while driving off duty. Whatever challenges they faced, however, the community was not sympathetic. The black police are just as bad as the white police officers, black resident Henry James said. Black officers had been involved in some of the 15 fatal shootings of black men between 1995 and 2001. The issue was the police. No matter the race of individual officers and the policing culture the department sustained, which Scott Johnson, a black Cincinnati cop, characterized as an us-against-them mentality. Even as police departments diversified in the late 20th century in reaction to pressure to enforce affirmative action policies and improve police community relations, 
the fundamental tensions between police and low-income residents of color remained. Although open racism by officers was less accepted than it once had been, ordinary citizens were still largely excluded from making decisions about their own public safety, and officers and departments were seldom held accountable for their discriminatory actions. Crime control efforts remained fixated on repressive strategies that led to excessive force, if not extreme violence. Law enforcement continued to treat low-income communities of color with suspicion. Absent a more open, transparent, community-based approach, most police officers, even those working for departments that subscribed to what passed for a community policing ethos, continued to view their primary job as getting the bad guys— instead of thinking of themselves as public servants whose mission was to help people and keep vulnerable communities safe. In Cincinnati, this policing culture would face an unprecedented challenge after Timothy Thomas's killing. Civil rights groups had called into question local policing strategies in the city through lawsuits and protests since the Kerner Commission visited in 1967, and their efforts had taken a promising new turn just before Thomas's death and the rebellion that followed. In March 2001, the Cincinnati Black United Front filed a joint federal class action lawsuit with the ACLU, charging that the police department had systematically targeted and illegally harassed Black residents for more than 30 years. The suit, brought on behalf of a Black businessman who alleged that two police officers violated his civil rights by pointing a gun at his head during a traffic stop in 1999, accused police of stopping African-American citizens without reasonable suspicion of criminal activity and of frequently resorting to violence. The plaintiffs presented as evidence the 17 previous investigations in Cincinnati and the 214 total recommendations those task forces and panels had produced in order to demonstrate the pattern and practice of discriminatory enforcement on the basis of race by Cincinnati police. Echoing the conclusions of the Mayor's Community Relations Panel in 1979, the plaintiffs argued that officials had tolerated, acquiesced in, ratified, and been deliberately indifferent to practices by members of the CPD by failing to supervise or discipline officers who violated residents' civil rights. In an attempt to prevent the lawsuit from exacerbating the conflict between the police and the black community, Federal District Judge Susan J. DeLotte moved to settle the case through an alternative dispute resolution. DeLotte brought together representatives from the city's Black United Front, the ACLU, the police department, and the local chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police to negotiate a solution to police violence against Black residents. The parties named in the lawsuit, known as the Collaborative, met with DeLotte and mediator Jay Rothman, the president of the ARIA Group, a conflict resolution training and consulting firm. The law enforcement representatives and city attorneys in the collaborative immediately shut down any discussion of confronting racism in policing. As far as the defendants were concerned, racial profiling did not exist and therefore did not need to be fixed. If racial discrimination was put front and center in negotiations, the police leadership threatened to withdraw from the process and take the case to court, where the department would simply deny all the accusations. 
In order to keep law enforcement at the table, Delat and Rothman backed off from an explicit focus on systemic racism. The collaborative would instead set out to improve police-community relations. It was the only framework that would allow the parties to work together. While the collaborative's early discussions were adversarial, after the rebellion and with the Justice Department in town, police leadership began to take the charges of police misconduct and abuse more seriously. The Black United Front and other civil rights leaders were cautiously optimistic. If the federal court enforced the reforms reached by the collaborative so that they would not become yet another dead letter, it had the potential to transform the police department. Even in late March, weeks before Thomas's killing and the resulting explosion, an advisory group within the collaborative had been established, bringing together such potential enemies as Reverend Lynch and Keith Fangman, the president of the Fraternal Order of Police. The collaborative marked an important new beginning for police reform in the United States. The proposals it made were based on community input rather than solely on crime statistics and policing theory. The opposed interests within the collaborative invited their respective constituencies to join the effort to reshape police-community relations. Roughly 3,500 residents completed surveys online and participated in interviews conducted by local organizations and churches, allowing the people of Cincinnati a stake in the resulting policies and their outcomes. Even with officials taking these steps, Many residents kept protesting in the belief that racist policing was a symptom of racist institutions and unequal conditions, and that the collaborative could not bring about the necessary transformation of the city. As the collaborative began its work in April and May, residents and activists representing the Black United Front, the white-led Coalition for a Humane Economy, and Stonewall and other LGBTQ groups developed a strategy to fight for social and economic change. On June 2nd, thousands of mostly white protesters marched through downtown Cincinnati shouting, No justice, no peace, no racist police, and calling for Chief Stryker to resign. It was one of the first interracial protests directly linked to a black rebellion. After the March for Justice, as it was called, a number of religious and political groups came together to form the Coalition for a Just Cincinnati and to promote an international boycott of the city, focusing on a tourism industry that discriminated against black people. On Saturday, July 14th, the coalition called for an immediate and total end of travel and tourism in Cincinnati and demanded funding for neighborhood development, amnesty for all people jailed for riot-related charges, and the end of racial profiling by city police. Organizers reached out to tourism and business groups and to black celebrities in a massive letter-writing campaign, critiquing the level of racism, discrimination, tyranny, and general oppression in every area of life here, and charging that police are killing, raping, planting false evidence. In just two years, the boycott cost the city more than an estimated $10 million and led to the cancellation of conferences and conventions sponsored by black organizations and of performances by Bill Cosby, Whoopi Goldberg, and Wynton Marsalis. The boycott was intended to force authorities to invest in the people. Instead, the city decided to invest in the police. 
In early 2002, as the anniversary of the Timothy Thomas Rebellion approached, the city and the Fraternal Order of Police found themselves under intense pressure to settle the case brought by the ACLU and the Cincinnati Black United Front. After the collaborative's community outreach work had been completed by the end of 2001, both sides then threatened to withdraw from negotiations at various points during the winter of the new year. To prevent the effort from unraveling, Judge DeLott held sessions that went as late as three in the morning, ordering food to prevent anyone from using hunger as an excuse to leave. The attorneys representing both parties signed the collaborative agreement at 2.04 a.m. on April 3rd, and the city signed it about a week later, one year to the day after the rebellion started. Separately, the Department of Justice entered into a Memorandum of Agreement, also called MOA, with the city and the Cincinnati Police Department on April 12, 2002. The two contracts complemented one another, as intended, the collaborative agreement required law enforcement to remake police culture and strategies to change the us-versus-them mentality, while the MOA required new standards and training modules to meet constitutional safeguards on the use of chokeholds, chemical weapons, and canines. At the time, the collaborative agreement looked as though it established the most comprehensive and ambitious police community relations initiative in the nation. It called for the entire city to work together to address such problems as crime, disorder, and quality of life issues in Cincinnati through a community problem-oriented policing approach. Instead of relying on arrests, the goal was to encourage officers to seek other options during encounters with residents. This required a shift in the world view of the police and that they would need to get to know residents and listen to their concerns. The collaborative agreement, in short, reimagined police as social service providers. A federal monitor, Saul Green, and a small team of Justice Department investigators would remain in Cincinnati for five years to try to make sure the agreement was implemented and maintained. Yet even as the Cincinnati Police Department entered into both the collaborative agreement and the MOA, publicly deeming them fair and progressive, Chief Stryker and other officials remained skeptical. Officers, on the whole, had always followed proper procedures, so the agreements would not fundamentally change what our officers are already doing, as Assistant Police Chief Richard Jonke asserted. All of the recent incidents that ended in the deaths of black men were determined by internal review boards or the courts to be justified, absolving the police department of wrongdoing, as officers continued to see it, they were simply doing their jobs, and sometimes that meant getting rough. Fangman offered a list of reasons why the Justice Department's proposed reforms were not only ill-advised, but futile. Regarding controls on the use of guns during citizen interactions, Fangman indicated he would continue to unholster his weapon in high-crime areas. If people are offended at that, tough. This is the real world. My safety is more important than their feelings. On the use of mace, Fangman said the public ought to consider themselves lucky that we have chemical irritant, because if we didn't, a lot more people would be going to the hospital before they go to jail. And as for the police dogs, which were known to attack black residents, Fangman insisted, This isn't Birmingham, Alabama, 1963. We don't unleash our dogs and say, Go get them. 
but if a suspect refuses to follow verbal commands, of course the dog may be deployed. The dogs, the mace, and the unholstered guns were necessary for the officer's own self-defense when patrolling a dangerous community. If anyone has a problem with that, they need to have their head examined. Given these attitudes, implementation of the stipulated reforms, reforms the police themselves had agreed to, however reluctantly, was a slow and challenging process. The police department treated the federal monitors with outright hostility. In December 2004, about halfway through the contract's term, Saul Green wrote in a progress report that a CPD deputy chief spent much of the meeting with monitor team members, deriding the competence of the monitor team, criticizing the monitor reports, and complaining about the collaborative agreement's reporting requirements. During Green's visit, Chief Stryker also blocked the federal officials from attending training sessions and scheduled ride-alongs, banishing one monitor from police department headquarters. At the end of 2004, the monitor team determined that the city had failed to comply with the collaborative agreement in the memorandum and extended oversight by two years. In part because the Justice Department was more interested in asserting its investigative power than in actually forcing the implementation of the required solutions, the new problem-solving approach to policing did not take hold right away. For their part, rank-and-file officers basically rejected it. A 2005 evaluation conducted by the conservative-leaning RAND Corporation revealed that Cincinnati police were still aggressively stopping and searching residents in Over the Rhine and other black neighborhoods. But perhaps even more importantly, an independent civilian review board, a necessary check on law enforcement that black activists had demanded for years and that both agreements had pledged to create, did not materialize in any form that police would have had to reckon with, making it difficult to identify and punish officers with violent records. In summer 2006, the police department appeared to throw the collaborative agreement's problem-oriented approach out the window with Operation Vortex, an intensive crime control program targeting drug dealers and criminals in Over the Rhine. The mission was linked to the city's ongoing drive to gentrify and attract private investment to the neighborhood, the elite cadre of Vortex officers flooded the community and used many of the same practices that helped push black residents to rebel in 2001. Frequent pedestrian pat-downs and vehicle stops, misdemeanor arrests for infractions such as loitering, and generally operating under the old zero-tolerance mantra. By the fall, the department had made more than 2,200 arrests, nearly half of which occurred in a single 25-day period. Arguing that Vortex officers were improperly employing arbitrary arrest sweeps in the city and violating the terms of the collaborative agreement, the ACLU filed another lawsuit. While it took several more years, the Cincinnati Police Department did adopt many of the programs required by the collaborative agreement and the MOA in the end. The department should not have had any choice in the matter. By December 2008, at the close of the seven-year oversight period, Green issued his final report on the police department's progress, concluding that the city had made significant changes in the way it polices Cincinnati and was now in a very different situation than in 2002. A 2009 RAND follow-up study further supported Green's claims, 
pointing out that although residents of color still came into contact with police at disproportionate rates, racial profiling was less common, and black residents expressed more trust in the local police force than before. Remarkably, after decades of little change, police violence declined too. By 2014, 12 years after the MOA and the collaborative agreement were finalized, police use of force incidents had dropped by more than half since 2000. In the same period, the number of annual misdemeanor arrests fell from 41,708 in 2000 to 17,913 in 2014. The Cincinnati Police Department was reformed, but it had not reformed itself. The process had required constant support and oversight from the federal government, and had almost collapsed at various points due to resistance from within. This does not occur without federal intervention, the now former police chief Stryker admitted in 2015. You can very easily slide back into the same problems and issues you had in the past, unless your feet are held to the fire and the person you're answering to is a federal judge. Compared to cities such as New York and Chicago, where zero-tolerance policing continued through the 2010s, Cincinnati emerged as one of the nation's most notable progressive alternatives as a result of the sustained and relatively vigorous federal intervention. Policymakers and law enforcement authorities across the country heralded the collaborative agreement in Cincinnati as a model of effective policing reform and of community-based policing measures, especially in the wake of the killings in 2014 and 2015 of Michael Brown in Ferguson and Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Cincinnati was held up as the poster child of police reform. President Barack Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, as well as a separate task force convened by Ohio Governor John Kasich, reportedly incorporated some of Cincinnati's community-based strategies into their recommendations for reform. But for many black people in Cincinnati, the reforms had brought welcome yet still limited change. Activist groups had envisioned a structural transformation. People need help in the streets. They don't need help from the police, a man called Bic Cortar told an Atlantic reporter in 2014. They can't give you a job. Police harassment and violence were only one aspect of political, economic, and spatial exclusion in Cincinnati and other cities. Even improved policing could not resolve decades, if not centuries, of inequality and racial oppression. Instead of responding to the demands the Coalition for a Just Cincinnati put forward in its boycott of the downtown area, or the perspective of residents such as Bic Cortar, the city and its corporate elite memorialized the black freedom movement and the long struggle against racial injustice by spending $110 million to build the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. The museum, which opened in August 2004, celebrated Cincinnati as a haven for escaped slaves. It was a transparent attempt to address the city's poor reputation on matters of race. Shaped by corporate interests, the center curiously presented figures including Carl Lindner, at one time the wealthiest man in Cincinnati, who had headed Chiquita Brands International when it was accused of mistreating workers and contaminating the environment, as a civil rights hero. For many residents, it was obvious the museum was a public relations effort, 
a cartoon ran in the Cincinnati Enquirer, depicting a white man shouting, Free at last, in response to the center's opening. Reverend Lynch and the Black United Front protested on the center's opening day by organizing a People's Underground Railroad Freedom Center that brought historical documents and photos from anti-racist movements to Fountain Square in downtown Cincinnati. Reverend Lynch and other activists had been organizing for years to bring better jobs and housing to black residents, not for a museum on the riverfront funded by corporations. Many black residents boycotted the center for years. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, the federal government responded to black rebellions by providing urban police departments with military-grade weapons and patrol techniques so that they could more efficiently wage the war on crime. In the early 21st century, the federal government responded to the rebellion in Cincinnati by attempting to counteract the anti-black violence that it nurtured in the earlier era. Instead of preventing crime and rebellion with armored cars and bulletproof vests, now these problems would be prevented with community-oriented and trust-building strategies, as well as non-lethal technologies such as tasers and body cams. Although such soft measures may have improved everyday interactions between officers and residents, they did not stop police violence in Cincinnati or elsewhere. The August 2014 rebellion in Ferguson, Missouri, following the killing of 18-year-old Michael Brown by a police officer, had been a bitter rebuke to the argument that the nation was making progress under its first black president. The people of Ferguson drew attention to the fact that poverty, unemployment, and police brutality had not gone anywhere. What started as a peaceful protest the day after Brown's death escalated when 150 police showed up in riot gear. Some residents, in turn, burned down businesses and looted stores. Over the next eight days, the nation was witness to the militarization of local police— Assisted by the National Guard, heavily armored police used tear gas, smoke bombs, and rubber bullets against the protesters. Representing Cincinnati's Black United Front, activists Iris Rowley and Reverend Lynch went to Ferguson three days into the rebellion there. We're here to share Cincinnati's story of struggle and success, Lynch explained. I'd hate to see Ferguson lose this opportunity for change. When Lynch and the other Black United Front members arrived in Missouri, they went to an office depot to print 100 copies of the collaborative agreement, stuffing each copy of the historic document into a white envelope with the words, A Way Forward, and their contact information scrawled on the outside. Lynch and Rowley stayed for four days as the violence persisted, handing the packets to activists, officials, civil rights advocates, and academics while protesting in the streets at night and getting tear-gassed for the first time since the Cincinnati Rebellion in 2001. Ultimately, the Black United Front's efforts inspired the formation of the Ferguson Collaborative in the aftermath of the protests. The Ferguson Collaborative went on to work with the Justice Department during the consent decree negotiations that followed the uprising, and it organized to empower the community and defend residents who were arrested or fined for arbitrary reasons. Less than one year after Ferguson erupted on Tuesday, July 28, 2015, 
More than 500 people attended the memorial service for Samuel DeBose at the Church of the Living God in Cincinnati's Avondale neighborhood. They walked by DeBose's open casket, decorated with red mums, his head resting on a white satin pillow. DeBose, aged 43, had been stopped nine days earlier by a University of Cincinnati police officer off campus for driving without a front license plate. The officer, 25-year-old Ray Tensing, asked DeBose for his driver's license. Tensing's body camera footage shows DeBose disobeying the officer, putting his car in drive instead of unbuckling his seatbelt as requested. Tensing, who was wearing a T-shirt depicting the Confederate flag under his uniform at the time, shot DuBose in the head at close range. The details of the killing were for another day, however. The funeral service was an opportunity to celebrate DuBose's life. Today is about solidarity, preached the Reverend Ennis Tate during the service, echoing the words of Reverend Lynch some 14 years before him. Fill this house with love. Justice, it was hoped, would follow. Because DeBose's final moments were captured on video and widely distributed across social media, his killing, like that of 43-year-old Eric Garner in July 2014 in New York City, of 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland in November the same year, and of 50-year-old Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, April the next, stoked debate about policing and the emerging national protest movement, Black Lives Matter. Demonstrations were held across the country in response to DuBose's death, with participants chanting, I am Sam DuBose. During the funeral, and as they had done for Timothy Thomas, a group of protesters gathered outside of the church. This is democracy. This is what democracy looks like, said December Lamb, a member of the Black Lives Matter movement. I ain't anti-cops at all. We need good cops. We don't need bad cops. In contrast to the response to Timothy Thomas's killing, the protest in 2015 Cincinnati did not turn violent, in part, officials claimed, because the collaborative agreement helped to hold the peace. Like Angela Leisure and the Thomas family, DuBose's mother, Audrey DuBose, wanted more than anything to see police violence punished. There is no justice if someone can get away with murder and walk away, she said. Although Tensing was eventually charged with murder and voluntary manslaughter, after two mistrials due to deadlocked juries, County Prosecutor Joe Dieters, who called the incident the most asinine act I've ever seen a police officer make, dropped the case. Tensing like Stephen Roach, walked free. Between Michael Brown's shooting in 2014 and Tensing's second mistrial, only six of 19 cases charging police officers with murder or manslaughter led to convictions nationally. Tensing actually received a $350,000 settlement from the University of Cincinnati for wrongful termination. DeBose's family, who reached their own $4.85 million civil settlement with the University of Cincinnati, saw Tensing's reward as the ultimate injustice. I'm very upset with UC paying that murderer, Tensing, DeBose's fiance, Deshonda Reed, texted to a Cincinnati Inquirer reporter.
He's officially a paid assassin who has not shown one ounce of remorse for killing an innocent man. As Reed recognized, and as the thousands of black people knew when they took to the streets in Cairo, Illinois, in 1969, or Kenosha, Wisconsin, in 2020, justice is not often forthcoming for black Americans, and reforming the police, though a rare and difficult accomplishment, is never enough. Until this nation imagines a different approach to public safety beyond police reforms, it is not a question of if another person of color will die at the hands of sworn, even well-trained officers, or if another city will catch fire. But when? Conclusion like their forebearers in the late 1960s and early 1970s, black residents in Cairo, Illinois, marched through the streets calling for an end to racism and discrimination in the summer of 2020. Charles Cohen, a significant figure in the earlier movement, died in 2018. Now, standing on the shoulders of one who fought the good fight here in Cairo, his daughter, Robbie Cohen, delivered the event's main address in her father's honor at the Heartland Unity March and Juneteenth celebration that took place in the streets of downtown Cairo on June 19, 2020. The question I ask you today is, what are you going to do? And the question I ask myself is, what am I going to do, she said. We have a responsibility as black people to stand up for what is true. Between 15 and 26 million people participated in that summer's nationwide demonstrations for racial justice, the largest social movement in American history. Every city discussed in this book, and at least 2,400 others across all 50 states and Washington, D.C., witnessed protests— Although the vast majority were peaceful, only about 5% involved violent forms of protest, according to one study. All were in response to state-sanctioned violence, like black rebellions that came before. People took to the streets in the days after a group of Minneapolis police officers suffocated a 46-year-old black man named George Floyd to death. The killing of Floyd in late May, caught by a number of bystanders holding phone cameras, was the immediate cause for the rebellions. Yet his death also helped bring awareness to two other horrific incidents of anti-black violence that local authorities had brushed aside in the months before. The fatal shooting of 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery by a white father and son who spotted the young black man jogging through their southern Georgia neighborhood in February 2020 and the shooting by six plain-clothed Louisville police officers of 26-year-old Brianna Taylor in a botched raid the following month, killing her after rousing her from the bed where she was sleeping. Protests demanding justice for all three victims peaked in the first week of June, and 8,700 demonstrations across 74 countries around the world marched in solidarity. These protests marked the arrival of a global movement for racial and economic equality. The demonstrations lasted for several weeks in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where police had used tear gas during the rebellion in 1968. 
Hundreds of protesters paired their outrage over the deaths of Floyd, Arbery, and Taylor with a set of policing and sentencing reforms that Black Americans have long demanded in the city, including banning the use of chokeholds and establishing a Citizens Review Board to be elected by Fort Wayne residents themselves. In Peoria, Illinois, where rebellion was a regular occurrence in the last years of the 1960s, protesters chanted a new slogan, Defund the police, a call for government authorities to invest directly in low-income communities, the idea of defunding the police put front and center the education, employment, and housing measures that Peoria residents had fought for a half-century prior through both nonviolent and violent means. The protests in Cairo, Fort Wayne, and Peoria, and in thousands of other cities in the summer of 2020, have, at the time of this writing, marked the latest chapter in the Black freedom struggle. During the key years prior to and after King's assassination, and into the early 1970s, rebellions were rooted in political and economic grievances, but were usually triggered by the policing of ordinary, everyday activity. Beginning with Miami in 1980, black Americans rebelled in response to moments of exceptional violence and challenged the justice system in its entirety. Along the way, the militarization of American police and the criminalization of black and brown communities only continued. While mandatory minimums for drug crimes and three-strikes-and-you're-out sentencing practices systematically targeted low-income people of color— Police officers still rarely faced consequences for their violent actions. The contemporary movement for racial justice has built upon earlier traditions, creating a type of militant, nonviolent protest that blends the direct action tactics of the civil rights movement with the critiques of systemic racism that are often identified with black power. While many Americans celebrated the massive protest movement ignited by Floyd's killing, that direct action was even seen as necessary and that so many people were moved to participate points to dispiriting linkages to the immediate post-civil rights era. For many years, it appeared that riots were a thing of the past. The violence in Cincinnati in 2001 was treated by the national press as an anomaly— a footnote or coda to the era of mass black protest. At the time, it appeared that the nation had not confronted a major rebellion in almost a decade since Los Angeles in 1992. But by 2020, the nation had already tipped into a new era of protest. The fires returned in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 after the killing of Michael Brown by a police officer. Between then and 2020, Numerous police killings drew national attention. Among the dead were Laquan McDonald, a 17-year-old Chicagoan who was shot as he walked away from a police officer in October 2014, and whose murder was covered up by the city's liberal political establishment. Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy who had been playing in a park with a toy gun and was shot and killed by Cleveland police in November 2014, and Sandra Bland, a 28-year-old woman who died mysteriously in the Waller County, Texas jail in July 2015. Eric Garner was killed in New York City only weeks before Brown. There are many others, including Freddie Gray, Natasha McKenna, and Philando Castile, and beyond.
One reason for the return of rebellion is technology. Many, if not most of us, have cameras in our phones. Surveillance cameras have become a ubiquitous part of modern life. Outrage over police violence has long existed in black communities, but the videos, the proof, supported claims that had been disregarded or simply denied for many years. With the fundamental neglect for black lives now undeniable, countless white Americans were driven to outrage, too. The Rodney King beating in 1991 was the first to broadcast what the police do to black people when they think no one is looking— Two decades later, numerous videos of police officers brutalizing and killing civilians could be widely shared across social media platforms. The nine-minute video of George Floyd's murder has been viewed an estimated 1.4 billion times as of this writing. Although the flood of videos has fueled calls for justice among white Americans, increased awareness of widespread anti-black violence has not resulted in swift systemic change. And so, the struggle continues. At the forefront of the new generation of activists and organizations is the Black Lives Matter movement, which formed in July 2013 after George Zimmerman was acquitted for the senseless killing of 17-year-old Black high school student Trayvon Martin. As an organizing principle, social media hashtag and idea, Black Lives Matter received national recognition during the uprising in Ferguson and has since inspired worldwide demonstrations. Founded on the argument that the wars on crime and drugs in low-income communities of color constitute a war on black and brown people, Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project 100, We Charge Genocide, the Dream Defenders, and similar groups have called into question the decision to invest in policing, surveillance, and incarceration over schools, jobs, and decent shelter for poor people. Two generations removed from the era of rebellion in the 1960s and early 1970s, the young activists at the center of the contemporary freedom movement have forced us to reckon with anti-black racism and how policing and incarceration in America anchor totalizing systems of political and economic oppression. That the movement for black lives began during the second term of Barack Obama, the first black American president, shattered the illusion that the United States had become a fully inclusive society and had perhaps shed its racist past. Obama's victory was a legacy of the civil rights movement, of the growth of the black middle class, and the rise of black professionals and elected officials. Yet despite the displays of black wealth in popular culture, the seats black executives enjoy in corporate boardrooms, and the fact that overall black families started to do better economically after 1965, in 2020, the typical black household still earned a fraction of the income of white households, 59 cents for every dollar, or about $29,000 less a year. In 1965 and in 2020, unemployment and poverty rates among black Americans were roughly twice that of their white counterparts. Today, three-quarters of white families own their own homes, while less than half of black families do. Disinvestment over the last 50 years has left urban public schools in shambles, and as a result, a disparate proportion of low-income Black and Latinx children remain undereducated.
Although the incarceration rate for black Americans has dropped in recent years, it is still six times that of white Americans. These grim figures underscore the ongoing fact of racism and its consequences, a reality that sits uncomfortably alongside the progress made by some black people in the half-century since the legislative victories of the mid-1960s. During Obama's presidency, in addition to Ferguson, other cities, including Oakland, Baltimore, and Milwaukee, witnessed peaceful protests and vigils, as well as violent encounters with police, property destruction, and looting, highlighting the structural shortcomings of 1960s civil rights legislation and the liberal reforms that followed in subsequent decades. The videos and the fires made clear that injustice and inequality had not vanished. People of color were still being killed by the police, and the legal system still demonstrated complacency, if not hostility, when faced with this fact. Even if most of the new protests were peaceful, collective political violence returned on a scale not seen since the 1960s and 1970s. Both strains of black protest have served important purposes historically— any successes of the nonviolent, direct political action of the civil rights movement depended on the threat of violent, direct political action. As Martin Luther King Jr. himself recognized, the power of mass nonviolence arose in part from its capacity to suggest the coercive power of violent resistance should demands not be met. The violent and nonviolent expressions of black protest are entwined forces, and rebellion must be understood on its own terms, as a type of political action that has been integral to the history of the freedom movement in America. The wave of protests in the summer of 2020 diverged in critical ways from the rebellions of the late 1960s and early 1970s, and from the massive conflagrations that came after, from Miami to Los Angeles. Unlike earlier rebellions, which typically began with demonstrators throwing rocks, bottles, and other objects when the police arrived to patrol their communities— the protests started as peaceful marches and vigils in response to flagrant acts of police violence. When police responded aggressively to those nonviolent protesters, some of the demonstrations quickly turned violent. Three days after George Floyd's killing, protesters in Minneapolis seized the city's third police precinct building and set fire to it. Protesters in many cities set police vehicles ablaze, Yet most of the violence, or more specifically vandalism, in the summer of 2020 was not directed at police officers or businesses, but at the nation's most obvious symbols of oppression. Monuments across the country celebrating individuals who promoted conquest and genocide, who held generations of people of African descent in bondage, or who fought to defend the institution of slavery, were defaced or destroyed. At least 38 demonstrations resulted in significant damage to or the complete destruction of memorials around the United States, most of them tributes of some kind to Confederate military leaders. Where the demonstrators did not pull statues down or tarnish memorials with spray paint, the protesters pressured authorities to remove symbols that seemed to celebrate injustice and to rename schools, libraries, and other public facilities that through their names were monuments themselves to darker episodes in this country's past. 
Rebellions throughout America, from those in the 1960s to Cincinnati in 2001, mainly involved black protesters, yet the most sustained collective violence in 2020 did not emanate from black ghettos. In a reversal that would have been unthinkable not so long ago, it came from majority white cities and suburban communities. Most of the looting in 2020 took place in upscale neighborhoods, and it targeted high-end retailers like Gucci and Tiffany & Company on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, not the white-owned mom-and-pop stores along Central Avenue in South Los Angeles, as it had in 1965. Confrontations between protesters and police were most intense and protracted in cities like Portland and Seattle, among the whitest cities in America. This matched, broadly, the demographic profile of protesters across the nation. In recent years, increasing numbers of white Americans have taken to the streets to fight racial injustice, and very often in places where few, if any, black people live. An estimated 95% of counties where protests took place were majority white, and three-quarters of these counties were 75% white. In some cases, white participants protected black protesters from the police, using their bodies to shield them from potential brutality and chanting black power. These developments suggest that as the country becomes more diverse and as the history and fact of systemic racism is further brought to light, rebellions led and comprised almost solely by black people and taking place in segregated black communities may be a thing of the past. The 2020 demonstrations revealed that racial justice champions, environmental activists, LGBTQ rights advocates, and labor unions appear to be stitching together a new coalition. In Cincinnati, almost two decades after the March for Justice organized by social justice organizations following the rebellion there, left-wing activist groups now called for a redistribution and redirection of resources away from police departments and prison systems and toward programs that would improve mental health services, address climate change, and provide better housing, education, and job opportunities for all Americans. By emboldening white extremism, the hostile rhetoric and policies of President Donald Trump's administration only emboldened progressive white Americans to forge new alliances and take action. Another, even more recent shift is that unlike the heavy-handed riot control strategies from Harlem in 1964 and on, in 2020, some public officials and police officers participated in the demonstrations to express support for the anti-racist cause. In a number of cities, including Stockton, California, where residents trapped two police officers in the gymnasium of an all-black housing project in 1968, a few police officers joined Black Lives Matter demonstrations and took a knee to memorialize George Floyd and recognize police brutality. In some cities, these actions reduced tensions and prevented the escalation of violence on both sides. In others, they were taken as PR stunts that papered over the structural forces that lead to police brutality. Even within the same departments, extremes exist— some officers have expressed solidarity with anti-police brutality protests, while others have supported brutalizing peaceful protesters. In Buffalo, New York, one group of officers kneeled alongside demonstrators, 
while another was captured on video pushing an elderly white man to the ground and fracturing his skull. Corporate and political leaders offered a notable set of responses to the protests, taking steps toward progress on racial equality, as a Quaker Oats spokesperson explained the company approach on June 17, 2020, when it decided to change the name and imagery of the Aunt Jemima brand of syrup and pancake mix. Major financial institutions pledged their support. Bank of America alone said it would donate $1 billion to strengthen economic opportunities and communities of color. Walmart, the world's largest retailer, and pharmacies such as CVS ended the practice of placing black beauty products behind anti-theft cases. Former President George W. Bush, who was criticized for his insensitivity to the plight of black New Orleans residents killed or displaced by Hurricane Katrina in 2005, recognized the protesters as marching for a better future and posed the question, how do we end systemic racism in our society? An emerging national dialogue moved discussions of racial justice away from individual prejudice and action and toward the political and economic institutions that perpetuate inequality. The new multiracial, broadly popular protest movement appeared to signal a break from the past when black rebellion, riots, were widely feared by white America and seen as a pathology distinct to black America. Yet, the country had been here before, perhaps not in every respect, but almost surely in the most important respects. From the Kerner Commission onward, task forces and commissions frequently identified the structural causes of collective political violence and highlighted the dangers of entrenched racism. Corporations are not new to social justice rhetoric— the Eurostar sneaker brand promised to turn former Crips and Bloods into entrepreneurs after the 1992 rebellion in Los Angeles. But when the news cycle moved on, the company lost interest. Acknowledging the reality of systemic racism, renaming a Robert E. Lee High School to a John Lewis High School, as happened in Fairfax County, Virginia, making donations to social justice and anti-poverty organizations, and using the Black Lives Matter hashtag on social media, these are insufficient substitutes for the structural transformation that Black Americans have long been calling for. Although the historic demonstrations in 2020 resemble the civil rights marches of the first half of the 1960s, more than the violent protests later in that decade, authorities frequently responded as they had in those later years. As they had then, and in Miami in the 1980s, in Los Angeles in the 1990s, and in Cincinnati in the 2000s, they fired rubber bullets, used pepper spray, beat protesters with riot sticks, imposed curfews, made arrests, and in some places called in the National Guard. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, protesters surrounded police cars and began shouting obscenities at the officers inside until reinforcements arrived in full riot gear and tear-gassed the men, women, and children at the scene, just as the chemical weapon had been liberally used by the Harrisburg police back in 1969. In a moment of national eruption over racial inequality, 
when tens of millions of people were on the streets calling for the country to envision a different kind of society, the Trump administration eagerly championed the escalation of police force as the only viable response to the protests. These thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, President Trump declared on Twitter on May 29th, four days after the killing, as mostly peaceful protesters were in the streets across the country. When the looting starts, the shooting starts, the president wrote in a tweet, quoting word for word, knowingly or not, Miami Chief of Police Walter Headley's response to the city's rebellion in 1967. Trump called governors weak for permitting people to exercise their First Amendment right to protest, instructing state officials to summon the National Guard to dominate the demonstrations. In Minneapolis, in the president's words, the troops cut through protesters like butter. Other prominent conservatives joined Trump in advocating for a militarized response to the protests. In a New York Times op-ed published June 3rd, Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton drew comparisons between 2020 demonstrations and the rioters of the 1960s, who plunged many American cities into anarchy in an orgy of violence. Echoing the distinctions Lyndon Johnson drew between peaceful civil rights protests and violent hoodlums, Cotton claimed that the rioting has nothing to do with George Floyd. The only way to subdue the rioters, Cotton concluded, was an overwhelming show of force to disperse, detain, and ultimately deter lawbreakers. As in the late 1960s and early 1970s, when blame was laid on outside agitators and black revolutionaries, Cotton, Trump, and other officials attributed the violence to Black Lives Matter and to the loosely affiliated groups of anti-fascist activists, collectively known as Antifa. In the words of Senator Cotton, nihilist criminals are simply out for loot and the thrill of destruction, with cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa infiltrating protest marches to exploit Floyd's death for their own anarchic purposes. In the style of the anti-communist film Revolution Underway that had been shown to local police across the United States to discredit the Black Power movement, officials and conservative-leaning media outlets launched disinformation campaigns that classified Black Lives Matter activists as violent extremists and Antifa as a terrorist organization. These labels helped cut into public support for the protests, which peaked the week after Floyd's killing and sharply declined thereafter. Even as the majority of Americans expressed a degree of support for the Black Lives Matter movement, one poll found that 42% of respondents believed that most of the protesters against racial injustice are trying to incite violence or destroy property. The Trump administration and its allies branded the protests anti-American, criminal, and violent. They backed their rhetoric with action and attempted action. Federal troops had been deployed to a number of cities during the rebellions that followed Martin Luther King Jr.'s murder in 1968 and to Los Angeles after the acquittal of the police officers who brutalized Rodney King in 1992. Now the Trump administration revived the idea that the federal government should intervene directly. 
On June 1st, U.S. Park Police and Secret Service agents used tear gas, riot batons, and other weapons against nonviolent protesters in Lafayette Square near the White House to make way for a photo opportunity for President Trump in front of St. John's Church nearby. By the end of June, as books about anti-black racism surged to the top of bestseller lists and protesters toppled monuments to Christopher Columbus and Jefferson Davis— President Trump issued an executive order that authorized federal agents to pursue people who damaged statues or federal property. The order led to the establishment of the Protecting American Communities Task Force, also called PACT, and the deployment of Department of Homeland Security agents to protests in Portland, Oregon, Washington, D.C., and other cities. In July, the Trump administration folded these efforts into Operation Diligent Valor, which, to the great ambivalence of many local officials, sent federal agents into the streets to aggressively police demonstrations. Unsurprisingly, this strategy only inflamed the protesters even more. That may have been Trump's goal, and the belief that further unrest would increase public support for his re-election campaign— Prior to Operation Diligent Valor, police intervened in about 24% of the protests in Portland and rarely used violent force. But with the arrival of federal agents, reported incidents of official violence nearly doubled to 40%. Before the deployment of the federal force, only 17% of demonstrations in Portland involved violence. For the remainder of the summer, just under half, or 42%, of the protests turned violent— the cycle of police violence causing community violence was in motion. By fall 2020, the federal government had deputized Oregon State Police to help suppress the demonstrations as part of a coordinated response with U.S. Marshals, indicating that the highest levels of the federal government were involved in the effort. The Trump administration targeted Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Mexican-American youth had engaged in violent political protest to challenge policing measures in 1970 with Operation Legend, a counterpart to Operation Diligent Valor, whose mission was to reassert law and order. In mid-June, after a crowd attempted to tear down a monument celebrating Spanish conquistador Juan Doñate, an extremist member of a local militia group, shot and wounded a demonstrator. Attorney General William Barr oversaw the deployment of 35 federal troops to Albuquerque and dozens of agents to New York, Chicago, Baltimore, Detroit, Oakland, and Kansas City, Missouri. The goal was not to protect residents against white supremacist violence, but to suppress the protesters. In hindsight, Barr's 1992 invocation of the Insurrection Act and rapid deployment of federal forces in Los Angeles, while attorney general under George H.W. Bush, was a rehearsal for the larger response in 2020. In addition to dispatching agents from the FBI, DEA, and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives to the city— Barr's Justice Department granted Albuquerque $9.7 million to hire 40 new police officers, even as local activists and politicians called for a divestment from law enforcement and investment in educational programs for young people. Historically, protests against racial justice have not only come in response to the forces of white supremacy, but have helped mobilize those forces, and 2020 proved to be no different. 
acting individually or in connection with organized white power hate groups, white extremists drove their cars into groups of protesters. In Austin, Texas, and Kokomo, Indiana, among other cities, these car rammings were perpetrated by military and law enforcement officials themselves. The tactic first appeared at the Unite the Right rally held in Charlottesville, Virginia, during the first summer of Trump's presidency. Militia groups and neo-Nazis marched through the streets of Charlottesville in August 2017, chanting racist slogans, brandishing assault rifles, wearing swastikas, and waving Confederate flags. One white supremacist at the rally rammed his car into a group of counter-protesters, injuring 19 people and killing a 32-year-old white woman named Heather Heyer. The rise of Donald Trump and his divisive and authoritarian politics empowered white supremacists. His campaign slogan in 2016, Make America Great Again, an explicit encouragement telling members of one white hate group to stand back and stand by during a presidential debate in 2020, made Lyndon Johnson look tame by comparison. At a press conference held in the aftermath of Heyer's killing, President Trump said that there were very fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville protests, much like the violent white hats in Cairo had been deemed good citizens by officials in the 1970s. Back then, white people stood on their lawns with their shotguns and German shepherds to intimidate and harass black residents for fighting to be treated as full citizens, or simply for existing in their vicinity. In late June of 2020, a white couple in St. Louis was photographed on their lawn, pointing a pistol and an assault rifle at Black Lives Matter protesters, only to be celebrated two months later at the Republican National Convention. The Trump administration did not hand out bullets to white supremacists like police officers in York, Pennsylvania had in 1969, but it did give the children and grandchildren of those same extremists other forms of support for their anti-black campaigns. Although incidents of violence during the protests in the summer of 2020 were minimal, much of the violence that did occur resulted from clashes between white supremacist groups egged on by Trump and demonstrators associated with the Black Lives Matter or anti-fascism movements. In Minneapolis, a member of the white supremacist prison and street gang known as the Aryan Cowboys smashed store windows in one of the earliest reports of property destruction in the city. According to police investigators, this man, who many assumed was a protester against police killings, wanted to sow discord and racial unrest— in Portland, members of Patriot Prayer, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys all demonstrated in support of President Trump. They drove trucks around and threw demonstrations, using pepper spray and shooting paintball guns at the protesters. During one such protest, Patriot Prayer member Aaron Danielson was shot and killed by white Antifa supporter Michael Rynell. Members of the U.S. Marshals Task Force later apparently executed Rynell in front of his car, an action Barr called a significant accomplishment. In Oakland, an Air Force sergeant named Stephen Carrillo, who belonged to the anti-government Boogaloo Boys militia, allegedly shot and killed a security officer and wounded another in front of a federal courthouse. He apparently saw the city's May protest as an opportunity to spread his extremist views and foment a race war. Following a historical pattern, 
local law enforcement welcomed the presence of white supremacist forces in various cities, even actively encouraging them to take the law into their own hands. On September 29, 2020, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform's Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties acknowledged the extent of this problem by convening a hearing on white supremacists infiltrating police departments. Roughly one month before, during protests against police brutality in Wisconsin that followed the shooting of 29-year-old Jacob Blake, a black resident who was shot seven times in the back at point-blank range by police while in front of three of his young sons, a newly organized civilian group calling itself the Kenosha Guard had taken to social media to encourage armed citizens to help its members to protect lives and property. This was the same slogan Citizens' Councils had rallied behind in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Many people traveled to Kenosha to support the cause, among them a 17-year-old high school student named Kyle Rittenhouse. He shot three people with an AR-15 rifle in what he later claimed to be self-defense. Two of his victims died. After his firing spree, video captured Rittenhouse walking past several armored police vehicles with his hands in the air and his weapon hanging from his neck. Rittenhouse was not arrested until after he returned to his home in Antioch, Illinois, some 21 miles away. From Cairo and York in the late 1960s to Kenosha in 2020, Individual police officers and sometimes entire departments have proved time and again to support the forces of white hate, whether implicitly or explicitly, while abusing protesters who seek racial justice. If nothing else, this book has striven to show that what were long assumed to be urban, black riots were in fact rebellions— political acts carried out in response to an unjust and repressive society. This redefinition leads necessarily to an examination of the failures of the civil rights era, whose unfulfilled promises resulted in continued poverty and skyrocketing imprisonment. Defund the police, the slogan that came to the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement following the killing of George Floyd, raised urgent questions about government spending priorities. If the goal is to realize the incomplete legacies of the struggle for racial justice, the first step is to move beyond reform. From the police community relations programs championed by liberal commissions in the late 1960s and early 1970s, to the federal interventions that introduced sensitivity training and accountability for officers in more recent decades, to the use of body cameras that are meant to keep misconduct in check today, Reforms have not stopped the killing in the past, and they won't stop more killings from happening in the future. When you see a police officer pressing his knee into a black man's neck until he dies, that's the logical result of policing in America, wrote the abolitionist organizer Miriam Kaba. When a police officer brutalizes a black person, he is doing what he sees as his job. The logic of American policing, searching for potential criminals in low-income communities of color, protecting property in the middle-class and wealthy white areas, increases the likelihood of police contact with black and brown people, and with it, police violence.
To end policing in its current form and create a more humane approach to public safety will require convincing many millions of Americans of the righteousness and practicality of the cause, especially since law enforcement officials have generally been resistant to any policies that might alter the balance of power. When residents demand to patrol their own neighborhoods, community policing in its truest form, and call for citizen review boards to hold violent cops accountable— Police administrators and unions argue that such measures would prevent officers from maintaining safety and securing order. Yet the history of police violence and black rebellion in post-war America demonstrates that patrolling low-income neighborhoods with outside forces does not promote public safety. On the contrary, it establishes a dynamic where residents and officers view each other as the enemy rendering both sides less safe. If anything, embracing policing and incarceration as a policy response to racial and economic inequality appears to function as a crime promotion program. The approach has not prevented the gun violence and crime that pervades the very same neighborhoods that are energetically policed. Young black people continue to live at greater risk of harm or death with police lingering in their community either from each other or from an officer whose job is ostensibly to protect them. Breonna Taylor's killing is a legacy of this policy path, sustained over five decades. So, too, is the death of nine-year-old Janari Ricks, who was killed in late July 2020, when a person began firing gunshots in a parking lot in Chicago's Cabrini-Green neighborhood, where policymakers feared urban guerrilla warfare would explode in 1970. Instead of building policies around the needs of the community, this nation has built them around controlling communities and, at the same time, has erected the largest prison system in the world to warehouse Americans who exist at the margins. Public safety mechanisms are essential to promote community vitality, but these mechanisms cannot and should not take the form of a uniformed officer, an outsider to the community armed with a gun. Given the resistance to the idea of defunding the police by many Americans across the political spectrum, the struggle to disinvest from law enforcement will be a difficult and protracted one. Yet there are other paths that can be pursued to change how the nation addresses poverty and inequality. For one, the unfair American system of taxation undergirds glaring economic and racial disparities— and is a possible source of investments that are urgently needed. The tax revenue pie in the United States is simply too small. Over the past 50 years, as the nation witnessed sporadic rebellion, the rise of mass incarceration, and the growing power and influence of the police, tax rates have fallen sharply for the richest Americans, while tax rates increased for the middle and working classes as wages stagnated and debts mounted. The Americans in the bottom 50% of the income bracket pay higher taxes than billionaires. This nation gives hundreds of billions of dollars in welfare to corporations in the forms of grants, tax breaks, and bailouts, a sum that far exceeds the amount put into public assistance programs and food stamps. The United States offers tax abatements to the ultra-rich and settles for collecting only small portions of the money held in offshore bank accounts. 
Defenders of the regressive tax system argue that if wealthy people are taxed too highly, they will identify loopholes to avoid paying what they owe. It is certainly true, at least, that authorities tend to defer to white-collar crime while arresting people like Eric Garner for allegedly selling loose cigarettes and George Floyd for using counterfeit currency. As with the decision in a number of states to allocate greater portions of taxpayer dollars to facilitate the incarceration of young people rather than provide an education for them, the tax schemes and lax enforcement of white-collar crime seem to contradict the nation's stated values and its commitment to the rule of law. In the face of the best available research and at a greater cost to taxpayers, policymakers at all levels continue to resist investing in alternative measures that would strengthen communities and improve safety overall. For instance, data indicates that children who participate in early childhood education programs are less likely to be arrested as teenagers. Yet funding for Head Start, the most visible remnant of the war on poverty and a program that helps the nation's poorest children prepare for school between ages three and five, continues to shrink. Similarly, research has consistently shown that expanding job opportunities for young people living in vulnerable communities can reduce arrest rates and violence. The federal government spent about $2.7 billion on employment programs for low-income youth in 2020, while investing more than double that number, or $6.1 billion, on grants and assistance to law enforcement, on top of the $115 billion state and local governments already spent on police that year. The most effective approaches to crime prevention involve programs that respond to community needs and grant control of public safety to residents, especially in the areas where the state has failed. In addition to new investments in preschool programs and job creation measures, mental health treatment and college scholarships would make for a safer society and a stronger democracy as would establishing a justice system based on the principle of repair instead of retribution. Police are the default response to violence and other crises in low-income neighborhoods of color, but community needs can and should be met by the people. The paths not chosen previously, from the structural blueprint the Kerner Commission developed in 1968 to the proposal made by Crips and Bloods in south-central Los Angeles in 1992, are well worth returning to for inspiration and for the discrete policy proposals themselves. There's a recurring trend in this country, observed protester Jordan Michael at the Peace Monument near the U.S. Capitol building in early June 2020. It's uprising, the demanding of rights. It's peaceful protests. It turns to violence. And then we get a response. Looting and arson push authorities to act, and then to appease us, we get handed something. But it's a crumb. We're asking for a loaf of bread, and we get a crumb, and they're like, look, we fed you. But no, this is not sustenance. Michael went on to say that sustained political action and sustained visibility, as in the civil rights era and the crucible years of rebellion that immediately followed, forced lawmakers to actually listen. Some lawmakers are listening again, and the challenge of the 21st century is to actually bring about change. 
As Michael's comments imply, America will continue to see the fires of rebellion, perhaps by a new, more diverse generation of protesters, until the forces of inequality are finally abolished and the nation no longer empowers police officers to manage the material consequences of conditions that are beyond their control. The End This book was read for you by Shana Small, a member of SAG-AFTRA. We hope you have enjoyed this production of America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s, by Elizabeth Hinton. Recorded books are available wherever audiobooks are sold. Thank you for listening to Recorded Books.